0: So thanks again for uh, participating today. Thanks. Uh, Thanks
1: for having me. And and like, I I started four companies on the back of a napkin, you know, like day one. And so I get both excited and know the feeling of, you uh, you know, sitting where you all are sitting right now. And unfortunately, this guy gets to have all the day one fun these days. Um, because Altimeter tends to invest a little bit later, and I'm sure we'll get into that today. Um, But my heart really still lies, and like the heart rate gets going, talking about building new things, you know, because ultimately what we all do only matters if we're making life better for some consumer, or we're making life better for some business, right? Like we're pushing humanity forward or we're not. Everything else is kind of bullshit in financial engineering. And so, being in the room with the people who are actually doing the work and building the things that keep this engine of innovation going, um, I, I couldn't wait to come and spend time with you.
0: Yeah, well, thanks so much for coming. Uh, maybe we can start with your background, actually, because um, you've done a variety of things. You were <coughs> trained, I think, as a lawyer. Uh, you've started multiple companies. You were very early on at uh, venture capital firms like General Catalyst, which have now really taken on a major role in the ecosystem. And then, of course, you, you started Altimeter in, I believe, 2008. 2008. Yeah,
1: um, so. The, 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 the quick and dirty. Um, uh, I went to went to law school um, 1996. Um, I mean, I was always passionate about technology, kind of an early adopter. But I see um, Andreessen on the cover of I think Time Magazine in 1996 for the Netscape browser. I gathered all my friends in law school around one of the few computers we had that was connected to the Internet. I pull up the Netscape browser. I said, this changes everything. You know, they're like, what are you talking about? And um, but I was in that moment, I realized I went to law school. I was trained as an analyst. But what I really wanted to do where my passion was, was to get to this place, Silicon Valley. I grew up in Indiana. I hadn't traveled a lot. I had never been to California, Um, so I bought a ticket and I flew to Silicon Valley. Um, And um, that really just started me on this journey. I, I ended up practicing law doing this stint in politics. And realized I wanted to go back to business school to pivot, you know, to really pivot into, into business. 1999, the world's blowing up, Internet 1.0. I feel like I was already late. I must have missed it. Um, there are already big outcomes, but of course, we we're just getting started. I thought I was gonna move to Silicon Valley. In fact, I came out here and interviewed with some small little companies. You know, I really wanted a small company with a ping pong table and like get getting that experience. So I interviewed with a company called Tell Me uh, you know, which Mike McHugh ran, which was kind of voice automation that Microsoft ended up buying. And then a little search company called Google, um, that I thought was already too big with a few hundred employees, but, um, loved it as a user. And ultimately my classmate who became my wife said, we're staying in Boston. And I knew these two guys who were trying to start a venture capital firm in Boston, David Fialco and Joel Cutler. And they said, Hey, come work with us. We need to put together a launch deal to launch the fund. And so let's incubate a launch deal and we need to partner with the best firm and the the hottest firm in the world to put ourselves on the map. So the hottest firm at the time was SoftBank. Before they weren't, before they were, before they weren't, and they've had quite the up and down over the years. But SoftBank in 1999 was flying. They were hosting every party out here. Everybody was starting an internet company. We had an we had an idea, <clears throat> David and Joel really, for an online travel business that basically was kind of like the Shopify for online travel. Go and build the booking engines, because Expedia was already doing air tickets, but they hadn't done hotels or vacation packages or cruises. So let's go build that booking infrastructure, and then we'll license it to the brands. Um, and that's what we did. We pulled the deal together. And within a couple of years, we had a business doing over a billion in gross bookings, over 20 million in EBITDA, and we'd go on to sell that business to Barry Diller um, in 2001. I started two additional businesses um, before getting back to the investing world. And so my the red thread for me um, was, you know, definitely a passionate analyst trying to understand and make sense out of the world. But really, as a founder, an entrepreneur, a venture capitalist, walked up and down Sandhill raising money. Um, You know, and had those feels of a first-time founder, all of the exhilaration, all of the terrifying feelings of that. I was running a company with 1,200 people when September 11th happened, and I had to gather them in a room and let 700 people go because the world of travel had stopped in a day. And so, like, unless you've done that, right, and experienced those things, then I think it's very difficult to have the empathy to sit in the chairs that we now occupy. And talk to founders who are on those journeys, um, and so I, you know, so many people along the way. But David and Joel were, were you know, really instrumental in helping me see what was possible.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's kind of interesting you mentioned um, the feeling of showing up too late. I remember talking to Mark Andreessen once about this, where he said, um, you know, he showed up in the in the nineties, um, and the world of shrink up software was sort of the prior wave right. right before the internet. And he's like, oh, everybody felt like they were showing up too late to Silicon Valley. Like, was it still a thing? And so I feel like it's almost a generational thing where every generation feels like it's showing up too late. And then it turns out in hindsight, there's so much to do and there's so many opportunities and all the rest. What made you decide to start Altimeter in 2008? So to your point, the financial crisis is happening.
1: It seems like certain people are ending. You know, once an entrepreneur, always. No, I had started these three businesses. And to be fair, they were all like base hits, doubles. But for a poor kid from Indiana, like they felt like smoking home runs to me. Right? Because you you just get economic freedom and it changes how you think. In fact, I remember Joel Cutler saying to me one time, it must have been 99 or 2000, I was fretting about something. He was like, We just need to get money in your bank account so you stop worrying about all the little shit. And I said, I'm happy to send you the wiring instructions. Like, we could solve this right now. Um, But um, I knew I wanted, by the time I'd started that third business, I knew that I really wanted to run my own thing. And I had some observations about venture capital and about public market investing um, that were different than what was currently being practiced. So in venture capital, I saw a lot of firms that were very generalist firms. Um, they were organized as traditional partnerships. They moved pretty slow. They were not very diverse. Um, most a lot of them at that time were in Boston. I, I, I consider myself a founder, one to be in Silicon Valley, one to be with my people wearing my t-shirts, I didn't want to wear suits. And I thought there was a huge advantage from also doing public markets. So in my early first company, I was lucky enough to have two hedge fund investors invest in that company. Paul Reeder who ran Park Capital and Seth Klarman who ran Post. true legends in the hedge fund industry. Nobody talked about it as like crossover investing, right? This predated Tiger and Co2 um, that both got started around that time. But if you go all the way back to Warren Buffett, 1950, he had been investing in private companies and public companies, right? He commingled them. It really were was the the you know the emergence of LPs who said, no, 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 you're not allowed to do both. We want you in one of these buckets that caused firms to start specializing and calling themselves, you know, kind of one thing or the other. I had a theory, technology companies are gonna scale faster because of this thing called the internet, the private markets and private capital will mature and be able to provide the capital and they need to scale faster. And that there was huge informational advantage from being in both, right? That I could bring the value of that venture network to the public markets and the public markets to the venture investors. Because if you're bold enough in, in 2008 to think you're a venture brand that can break in against the Sequoias of the world, and it, you know, the you better have, right? You better have a wedge. Like what's your wedge, right? And you better have a, a, a point of competitive differentiation. And so our wedge was really that we bring the knowledge, insights, research of the public markets, the relationship of the public markets to these earlier stage investors, and that we can be with them a longer period of time. Go and do that series A with Bill Gurley because he's excellent at helping you build that first two or three years, find product market fit. And then we'll come in, take the baton, help you scale your capital, still with the sensibility of a founder who wears a t-shirt and lives here and, you know, lives and breathes it, but also has a foot in Wall Street, knows how to navigate, you know, kind of scaling that capital. So I thought there was an opportunity. Um, I was lucky enough to be trained in the hedge fund business by Paul Reeder and some of these greats. So I understood the public market business. 2008, I certainly didn't think the world was going to be as bad as it was. I had... You know, I had some endowments who had promised me some money at the end of 2007. But this is a good lesson starting any business, right? So in 2007, the world's pretty good. Some people say, hey, we'll give you a couple hundred million dollars. Go start a fund. You know, we like this idea you have, public and venture. Move to Silicon Valley. I get married at the end of 07. I have my first child in June of '08, And I had made the plan, I'm going to launch this firm. And of course, the world starts melting down. And I don't know, entrepreneurs, like they're pretty damn determined. And I said, like the horse has left the stable. We're doing this. I'll get whatever money I get. I had mentors who started with just a little. Seth Klarman had started in 1981 with less than 20 million bucks. My mentor, Paul Reeder, had started with less than 5 million. So I was just like, the key is you're either committed or you're not. Are you starting or you're not? And so November 1st, 2008, yesterday was our 15th anniversary. Okay, The first trade I ever placed right in my own fund. I bought Priceline was the first stock we bought. The world was melting down. It was hard to even get a technology platform at that time to do our business because everybody thought all the investment banks were going broke. And the guy who gave me my shot at like opening up, uh, worked at UBS, right? Um, And he said, we'll be your prime broker and he said listen here's the truth i don't know if we're going to be in business in six months but you're a good guy let's give it a shot and if it works it'll work together and he sent me a text yesterday and it worked beyond all of our wildest dreams
0: yeah congratulations on 15 years
1: that's pretty amazing
0: thanks um you you folks have also done a variety of things you've done privates like um one of the early rounds in snowflake you help anchor ipos you do the public market investing how do you view the range of things that you do today and how's that broken out by
1: relative focus and Yes, So, you know, firms are organized in all sorts of different ways. You guys know the classic benchmark model, six partners, they're each full stack. Um, So they go source their own deals. They do their own deals. They don't have analysts, you know, and the portfolio is just the natural byproduct of the work that they do. And each partner tends to do two or three deals a year. We have a public fund, um, you know, so just to give you a sense of the path, we started with less than 5 million in 2021. We peaked at over 21 billion in assets. We sent seven billion in profits back to our, or six billion in change of profits back to our investors, more than all the money we had ever raised from all of our funds combined. Um, (coughs) And today we're over 10 billion, roughly split equally between our public funds and our venture funds. On the public side, that capital tends to be what they call evergreen. So somebody will give us their money, we'll go invest it, in the public market we're judged at the end of every year. We have a team of five people and their major is public markets and their minor is the venture uh, deals that we do. So everybody on our team has a major and a minor. We all work in an open setting like this. So we're sharing ideas because again, we think that free flow of information to really understand how are these venture insights from the relationships that we have informing whether or not we should be buying or selling NVIDIA right? And obviously you you guys get why that that works. On the venture side, we're now investing out of our sixth venture fund, which is about $1.5 billion. We just had our first close on our seventh, that will be a billion dollars. And there we really think of our sweet spot as being um, the occasional series A, but really the sweet spot is that series B and series C. So those are, you know, in the case of Snowflake, that Series B was 170 million. The Series C was 500 million. The Series B, it was still pre-revenue. They had been working on the product for three years. They had 10 beta customers. So we, we, we had a sense right because we could talk to the customers we could use the product ourselves we could we understood why why there was going to be product market fit and why rearchitecting the database native for the cloud separating storage and compute could be so big so i would say about 90% of the profits we've generated as a firm in venture were in companies that had less than 5 million in revenue at the time we invested I'm in
0: them about 179% of like <clears throat>
1: Yeah, that was total enterprise value of, of Snowflake when we got involved. And we're still one of their largest shareholders today, and it's over $50 billion in enterprise value. And I think you know there's a company that will most certainly double and triple from here in, in, in the fullness of time. Um, so unlike many firms, they do the series. Let's say you compete for the Series B in Snowflake. And let's say you don't win it. If you are a stage-specific speci- firm then all the work you've done on that goes on the shelf and you move on to your next deal. But at Altimeter, we may we may lose the Series B, we may choose not to do the Series B. That we don't think you know the risk reward is a good setup in the series B, but we can do the C. And if we don't do the C, we can do the D or the E. Or we've bought in over a hundred IPOs. We're one of the larger buyers in tech IPOs, so we can buy it in the IPO. And in the case of Snowflake, we bought it along the, you know, every step along the way because the risk reward kept getting better, right? Because although the price was going up, the risk was going down. And so we always think about the distribution of those probabilities, the relative risk and reward when we're making the investment. So if you ask me like, Brad, where does your heart really lie? It lies in this room, right? I'm still the guy who started those companies on the back of a napkin. But the truth of the matter is, we don't have the scale in our organization to be the best partner who's gonna sit there and hire your first engineer and spend that two to three years trying to find product market fit. So I partner with world-class guys like this guy, right? And other world-class investors like Benchmark or Mike Spiser at Sutter Hill or Martin Casado and, and Andreessen and go through the list. And we, you know, they're doing those A's and then we come in and we really wanna be the best partner possible and that, you know, to hand the baton to. And then when I can't satiate my own appetite for that early stage stuff, I come in as an angel investor, you know, off my personal balance sheet. And I have, I don't know, far too many angel investments. Um, But, you know, I can't resist um, the excitement in partnering with really world-class people at those early stages.
0: So a lot has changed since you started Altimeter in terms of the venture markets, the public markets. What do you think are the biggest shifts that have happened in terms of the entrepreneurial ecosystem since 2008 until today? Yeah. And what do you think will snap back? Because I feel like there's a lot of changes that happened during ZERP that happened over the last couple of years. Some of those will keep going and some will shift. I'm sort of curious how you think about the sort of macro side of this.
1: And I I might even rewind a little bit further because I think the pattern recognition of 1999 and then the period 2001, like, is super important. So, 99, everybody said, you know, like, I can start a company. This is easy. It's get rich quick everything was going to the moon, you can take it public, as no no real revenues, no real profits, that was all make-believe, right? And by 2001, the only people who hung around Silicon Valley were the real believers, right? The people who wanted to grind, who knew that this was a decade-long journey to build something that was durable and important and that made the world a better place. And it was a pleasure when the tourists left and the people who really believed stayed right and that period of investing 2001 to 2005 sure we had a lot of challenges interest rates were higher we had a recession we lived through but i will tell you we all knew that the internet you know those of us who stayed knew that the internet was going to be as big as we thought it was going to be and now it was just about much more sober investing to get you know to get you there by 2007 of course like humans it takes about 10 years for us to forget the sins of our you know prior period 2007, we saw some silliness start re-emerging. All of a sudden, public market investors thought this venture thing was easy and they started throwing big checks around in 2007. I was on the board of Zillow and you know I remember when this happened at Zillow. Um, but then 2008 hit. And again, it wrung everybody out of the system. right? Because if you don't have deep conviction at a moment of peril and distress, you are gone. Because the only people who have the stomach to stick around are the people who really believed in the first place. And so what came out of 2008, right? I launched, there are always a lot of distress era funds, by the way, Andreessen started at the exact same time that we started Altimeter. I remember being at the Allen and company conference with him in Arizona, and we're both passing around our decks to raise money for, you know, Andreessen Altimeter. And by the way, he's an incredible human and built an amazing business. And, you know, like to even be in the same, Conversation, uh, I, f- I feel, uh, I feel inspired by. But then we all lost our minds again, right? And you know, this started to build from two. You know, so the period 2009 to 2013, 2014 was really again the golden age. We had these two super cycles taking off. We had these mobile devices. We had cloud taking off. But we still had the post-traumatic stress of 2008 that kept that kept pricing in check. So like risk reward was fairly distributed. But by 2015, 2016, markets going up, everybody's like, this is easy. Again, all the tourists show back up. And man, I thought by 2000, Bill Gurley thought by 18, 19, man, this thing is so overcooked. And we hadn't even gotten started. I mean, then we had this thing in March of 2020, we have COVID really hit. We think it's the end of the world, but no, it wasn't the end of the world. The Fed went all in. Congress went all in. We jacked ourselves up on this super Red Bull high, right? Interest rates go to zero, and the only assets people wanted to own were risk assets. So the more unprofitable you were, but faster growing, the higher the multiple, right? And like those of us who had been through that period in 99, 2000, 2008, 2009, we're like, this does not make sense. Like, this is not sustainable. The market is being manipulated by the Fed. And by the way, I think for good reason. If you remember in March of 2020, we didn't know if COVID was Ebola. We didn't know if it was gonna wipe out humanity. And so what they were worried about is that we all just stop. We stay home. The economy literally stops, right? And they had to force everybody to take risks. They had to force everybody you know, into the equity pool, if you will, to keep the economy going. So at the start, I think totally justified. By the middle of 2021, I think the Fed lost their mind, stayed the course way too long, caused hyperinflation that we then had to come back in battle. But we knew this was upside down by, you know, on the all-in pod. We're, I was talking about this a lot throughout 2021, by the end of 21. And then we had the reset in '22, a tech recession, massive reset in pricing. But here's the interesting thing, because I had to set all that up just to answer the simple question, like, where are we now? We we never got back to the level of despondency that we had in 2001 and 2009. I mean, there it was washed out. People were so beaten up. They had looked into the abyss. They had witnessed death, and they wanted nothing to do with it. Like they, they, it was a scary feeling, right? I think 2022. Like yeah. People started to say, oh, you know, we need to tighten our belts a little bit. But I would say we only ratcheted back to what I would call maybe 2013, 2014 levels of fear and pricing. And so, and now we're entering another super cycle in AI that obviously has some dynamics unto itself that we'll get into. So, you know, listen, I think we formed a lot of bad habits during low interest rate environment and during Zerp. you know, I think it led to excess everything, you know, and this is, you know, I wrote this letter to to Meta Time to Get Fit, um, and I said to Mark at the time, this is an open letter to all of Silicon Valley, right? And I encourage you to read the letter, and then I encourage you to read his response letter that he wrote in March called Year of Efficiency, where he said flatter is faster, leaner is better, and man, Just his leadership, Elon's leadership, and others in demonstrating the need to wring out the excess out of these businesses and all the people that they were hoovering up that made it impossible to build a startup because the talent was getting overpaid in all these places. And so, why would you ever leave? Made it more difficult for the entire ecosystem. And now that whole cycle is reversing, and I see the right heartbeat coming back. Um, (coughs) But listen, Set a clock, set a timer in your calendar for seven or eight years from now because we'll forget all of this again and we'll all lose our minds again and there'll be some event in the world and we'll all get jacked up on Red Bull again and make sure that you say, God, I remember that conversation about 2022 because that is the time you need to be dialing it back.
0: That's when you sell and retire, effectively. <laughs> I think um, you know it's kind of interesting because if I look at private markets versus publics, because public markets have adjusted by 50 to 80% depending Correct. on the company, private markets haven't really shifted much, A, because they're illiquid, and B, because people raise so much money. Yeah. And so I think one dynamic that we haven't quite seen is any real uh, carnage happen in private tech. And so mm-hmm. we can come back to that in a second. And then secondly, to your point on AI, I feel like the... Um, tech economy was almost like an oil economy. And we ran out of oil and we discovered shale. And that was shale, (laughs) right? It's sort of the thing that kept everybody going and said, okay, now we still have energy and all this stuff. And it sort of reinflated the entire Mm -hmm. ecosystem and environment because it's a fundamental technology shift. Yes. Do you think the next year or two are going to see pain in private markets? Like, what what do you think is going to happen to all the companies that raised a couple years ago that may not have strong business models? Do you think any reckoning has happened yet? What sort of reckoning do you think will come, if any?
1: Well, I think we really have to bucket this. We have to cohort it because it's it, it, like there's a lot of stuff in there. First, let's talk about all those companies that raised series A's um, at inflated prices over the course of the last three years. You know, they're all in market. And unless they have AI in their name, there's no chance they're getting an up round done. right? All of those companies, if you raised it a billion dollars with no revenue, Right, like it's just so Do they
0: go under? Do they? No, what happened? Well, you know, yeah, they, it, because, it's a, it's a
1: very they? painful process. If they don't really have product market fit, they probably just disappear because the reset that's got to occur in those businesses is so demoralizing to the people in those businesses, so demoralizing to the investors. It's almost better just to, you know, shut it down and start over. And if you look at the pitch book data that uh I think, you know, J Cal and I tweeted last week, but I think they talked about on the pod, I think this most recent quarter or month, we had 239 shutdowns. So if you look at the rate of shutdowns in Silicon Valley, it's going pretty parabolic. And this, are, these are the early stage companies that were pre-product market fit that were raising at series B and series C and series D valuations. So the best case scenario in those companies is, you know, you're gonna do a big, and again, this is leave the AI kind of little, uh, leave the AI kind of, not a bubble, but, but the delish- deliciousness aside for the moment. I'm talking about the non-AI businesses. Those will all do big down rounds. The best of them may be a 50% down round, you know, if they want to raise new capital. Unfortunately, a lot of them, I don't like this pattern, but they're doing, they're extending converts and they're basically like, listen, a convert is very dangerous, right? And the reason the convert is dangerous is that comes home to roost at some point in time. And just expanding your convert right? Like you're just denying reality and delusion is not a strategy, right? So reprice the business, get the price right. And if that is not satisfying to you, if you don't own enough of the business at that point in time or whatever, call it quits and restart, right? Because you got to have the foundation right in these businesses. Otherwise it's very, very difficult. Okay, so that was the early yeah. stage, guys.
0: Over what period do you think that plays out, by the way? Do you think that's the next year, or the next two years, or the next three years? I think,
1: you know, I said last year it was a three-year journey, you know, so now I think it's a two-year journey, right? It's when these companies run out of money and need to come back to market, and I see a ton of them in market, you know. And just to put it in perspective, a firm like ours is our pacing over the last 24 months has been one-tenth to one-twentieth our normal pacing because like listen i can't do this this thing in the public market corrected by 80%. And now you're coming to me and acting as though interest rates have not reset and that nothing happened in the public market. Like i i can't live that delusion. So until like as 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 buyers and sellers, right? We have an honest conversation. And by the way, i'm not looking to steal anything because i've been in your shoes. But we have to have an equitable distribution of risk and reward, right? Because I have a fiduciary obligation to the people who give me their money. I care about these institutions, right? Their colleges, their foundations, their hospitals, you know, their state pensions, teachers and what, whatnot. I'm gonna fight like hell for these people. And so I can't just pretend nothing happened. So the early stage I think is gonna have to weather this. And I expect the pitch book data on shutdowns will continue to climb. By the way, it just started going up over the course of the last few months, to your point. You know, like we're, we're kind of just getting started. Now let's talk about the thousand unicorns. So these were the companies that were valued between a billion dollars and $50 billion. Okay. That were further in their journey. Most of them had product market fit, had real revenues, maybe 50, maybe a hundred, maybe two or $300 million in revenue. But they were valued at 50, 70, hundred times ARR. So I'm going to use software as kind of our, you know, our analog here. Um, follow Jammin Ball or at AltCap um, on Twitter. Jammin does probably the best analysis of software. He's a partner of mine, you know, at Altimeter. His sub called Clouded Judgment. And it just, it's just training in, in the art of thinking about this. And he has one foot in venture and one foot kind of in public markets. But you'll see that for high growth companies, profitable companies in the public markets, Their, you know, their um, uh, revenue multiple is now about eight and a half times. Okay. So now just run the math. If you're raising money at 3 billion, 4 billion, 5 billion at 70 times, just run the forecast out. How long do you have to sustain that growth to grow into the public market multiple that ultimately is your exit? And you just realize very quickly it's impossible. No software company's ever done that, right? Worse yet. Now we're entering an economic slowdown. And so these high growth companies, right, are now slowing down. So they had these multiples up here and they're now slowing down. So they're coming to you and they're no longer growing at 70, 80, 90%. They're growing at 20 and 30 and 40%. You say, hold on a second here. Amazon, right, AWS, which is on, you know, a $70 billion ARR run rate is growing, you know, is reaccelerating from 12% to 20% right? You've got these massive businesses, you know, like a snowflake still growing at 35 or 40%. So you have a hundred million in revenue. You're only growing at 20%. You're not profitable. And you want a premium multiple to these players? No chance. So again, I think that entire cohort, um, if you just wanted a rule of thumb, again, not any specific company, but you, you know, you take Instacart, an amazing business built by amazing friends and you know, people who killed it. But their last round in the private markets was $39 billion. Today in the public markets, there were worth six and a half. Okay. Why should any of these other companies have a better situation than that? That should be your case study. That should be your benchmark if you're one of these unicorns. And if you want a higher multiple right, or less adjustment down than they had, then show us why you've outperformed right, those expectations. So that, that leaves us with only one thing, and that's a slice of the market called AI. You know, and I love the shale analogy. Um, so I think that what makes AI so difficult from a venture capital perspective today really is two things. Number one, we have this massive reset going on around interest rates, normalization of multiples, these drawdowns. But at the same time, we have like excitement that only comes to us once a decade that the internet brought us that cloud brought us that mobile brought us and we have it and i think we're right that ai is that big augmented intelligence is going to be what we probably invest against for the next two decades of our life and so you can have that level of excitement just like we had about the internet 97 98 99 and you could be deadly wrong from an investing perspective think about this i've used this analogy 1998 lots of us around you know thought the internet's going to be huge. And one of the number one winners uh, or areas in which you can win will be search. Okay. Why? Because they're organizing the world's information. It's the point of entry to the internet. You put up a little toll booth, you collect a little toll, whether it's per transaction or whether it's subscription, like great place to be. So gather all these people, get them on your platform. You be the toll booth. At the time it was AOL and Yahoo that were really, you know, collecting the tolls, but we all knew you know, there was a lot of challenger technologies, AltaVista, Lycos, Infoseek, Go, um, <clears throat> Ash Jeeves, Google. And so every, every venture capital firm wanted a logo. Okay. So what'd you have? You, you got those two things right. And they all had revenue and all their revenue was going like this. Okay. Why? Because it was easy to get revenue, you know, at that point in time, because advertisers all wanted to be on the internet. And these were the only games in town. So all of a sudden now for every venture capitalist, you had all three of those boxes checked. You are like, count me in. I have to have a logo because otherwise how can I go back and talk to my LPs? And they say, well, who are you investing in search? And you're like, I don't have a search logo. Like they'd be like, you're an idiot, you're fired. So they, everybody thought they had to have a search logo. The truth of the matter is all those companies, you got all of that right. And all of those companies still went to zero. And you could have waited until 2004 and bought the Google IPO and captured 95% of all the profits ever generated by internet search. Okay. Now that's one of the reasons I like to do both venture and public markets, because I did buy the Google IPO, right? I was like, man, this is way easier than that venture stuff. Just ride this pony for the next decade. And, you know, which we did, but the truth is I kind of have this deja vu right now. Like when I look at, all you know you've talked you and I have talked about every foundation model you know player in the world and some people might say oh Brad you're grumpy you're over the hill all you talk about is valuations and multiples but no like I believe these are going to be really instrumental in changing the game the only reason we have this level of excitement is because of the convergence of you know all of this data set free you know silicon that's come together super compute and these transformational models that allow us now really to extract meaning um, out of an unlimited amount of data, right? So trying to sort through that and say, okay, if that's true, what is going to have durable, durable value capture? Am I getting head faked? Is this Alta Vista? Is this Lycos? Is this, is, is this Ask Jeeves? Or is this Google, right? And why did Google ultimately capture all the value? Because everybody went to Google, right? They owned the top of the funnel. They became the the place, not only did they own search, they were so crafty, they said, you know this address bar that people used to actually type in URLs? We'll just turn that into a search box. So anything you type in there becomes a search too. I mean, the level of execution, to build that natural monopoly, right? And they captured over a trillion dollars. I would argue it's over 110% of, of Google's value today is their search business. And for the first time in 20 years, we have a challenge to that. So I was talking at the Javits Center in New York last week, thousand people with, with Jason and uh, in the audience. And we said, how many people have used ChatGPT uh, you know, in the last two days? So I'll ask this room, how many, how many in here have used a, a chat GPT or Claude or something, some equivalent in the last couple of days. Okay, everybody's raising their hand for the benefit of the people at home. Um, you know, and how many people used it as a replacement to what you might have otherwise used Google for or search for? Okay, and about half of the people raised their hand, which is about what I would expect. Okay, and so I can tell you for 20 years, if I asked that question, no hands would go up. There was no alternative, right? And so all I'm saying is for the first time in 20 years, there's the possibility that something else may emerge as the top of the funnel, right? For how we live our lives, how we plan our travel, how we, you know, uh, get answers to to questions that we have. So I'm sitting here with my mobile device, you know, um, with my team and we're saying, okay, here's the challenge you know i want to find the coolest hippest business hotel on the west side of new york you know near the javits center and i want to know if it's available tomorrow night what it costs you use claude you use Chad gpt you use meta ai you use google go you use booking.com okay and it's very clear to me that the promise that can now be fulfilled is the promise that rich barton and i started with 23 years ago you know what rich was this brilliant engineer you know, at, at Microsoft, Bill Gates, he was working on uh, CD-ROMs on the computer. He's building travel CD-ROMs for the computer. He goes to Bill, he said, hey, Bill, CD-ROMs, that's not the answer. We're going to put these things, uh, you know, uh, you know, our Microsoft, they had a MSN service that competed with AOL. Let's put it on there. Let's, let, let, let's turn it into the internet. That's what I feel in this moment. I said, Rich, For the first time in 23, remember you wanted to put the world's smartest travel agent in everybody's pocket and instead all we got were 10 blue links? Well, now we can fucking do it. Like we can put the world's smartest travel agent in everybody's pocket where we interact, we ask questions, right? They come to understand me. They know my calendar, my travel schedule. And guess what? They can book it, right? Because action bots are like months away, not years away. They're going to close the loop for us. So this gets me really excited because those are multi-trillion dollar opportunities that are sitting out there waiting to be disrupted. Um, and I think, you know, again, we can go through a bunch of other things. So I would say valuations there are spicy and they're spicy because those of us who are looking at this saying, holy shit, this is shale. Right, this is a revolution in the discovery of oil. This changes everything. Like. I think there's a good chance that we're right. But I also am haunted by the Alta Vistas and the Ask Jeeves of the world. And I think being too early in too many things can be tantamount to being wrong.
0: Yeah, I think directionally, um, it's kind of clear that this is a big wave. And so I think everybody who's starting a company or investing in companies is thinking the thing they're doing is the right one. But the reality is if you miss Google, then you missed most of it, right? Yeah. And so it's back to like, what are, the, what are the characteristics that suggest that something is the right company? So you mentioned durability is an important thing. So say that you come in and you're about to lead a series B or C in a, in a key AI company. What are the characteristics you look for? What do you view as those, those metrics of durability? This is actually Google
1: and not like us, Right. Um, I mean, these things are, y- y- you know, some just enduring attributes. First, business is like one of the hardest competitive sports in the world. So if you're not dealing with maniacs who are willing to sacrifice everything in life to win, then you probably, no matter how good your product is, no matter how good your idea is, um, no matter how good your head start is, you probably don't win. So at that stage, I have to know, what is the wedge that makes this group of humans specially entitled to win? in this thing. Then, of course, secondly, for altimeter in particular, one of the things that we spend a lot of time thinking about is, you know, I think it's probably equally, you know, I don't know if you you have parents who started a restaurant, but I always look at somebody who starts a restaurant. I'm like, that's one of the hardest things in the world to start. Emotionally draining work, 24 by 7, kill yourself, barrier to entry is low it's probably as emotionally and intellectually challenging to start a restaurant as it is to start Google, right? I mean like, so is what we're betting on worth the risk and the grind and the probabilities associated with success? So we just, we, I say, if we assume everything you're saying is true, how big is the prize? Are we talking about a trillion dollar prize, all of search? Or are we talking about a small prize? Right. And then, like, obviously, that factors how we think about the price of entry. Price of entry matters. It's got to be a fair distribution of risk reward. And then, I, I would say another hallmark of altimeter, you know, we, we talk a lot about our culture of essentialism, um, the art of doing less better. And I encourage you all to read the book by Greg McCune. It's a great book. But to me, there are different strategies and, like, find your lane and venture, right? there. Are, I know people who place a lot of bets, right? And then they just see, they're like, okay, I'll, I'll pour water on the ones that are, that are sprouting. We probably spend more time as like anthropologists, researchers, we wait, we study. And when we see the real indicators emerge, then, we, then we're pretty aggressive in terms of really making that an important bet within the portfolio. So we have less ideas, but we have more wood behind each swing of the bat I think, within our portfolios. Um, so those are, the, those are some of the attributes, I, I, I think, that, that we think about. Are they killers? Do they have a great idea that if all the things are true, it's going to be a really big outcome? Um, and then finally, are these the people that we want to be in business with for the next 10 years? Right integrity. Do they think there should be balance between, you know, kind of the fair and equitable distribution of risk? Are they going to have our backs? Do we want to have their backs? Because this is a long journey. These are hard journeys and, you know, life is short. So be in business with people that you actually want to spend time with.
0: I think I think related to that, if you see the shift is coming through AI societally, there's going to be potentially a lot of changes in terms of how we think about work and how we think about um, equity and sort of the nature of the economy and other things are going to shift over time. And I think one thing that you've talked about a lot is really how technology and people working in technology should take a responsible lens on mm. innovation, how they should engage with society, how they should try and push things forward. You know, there's so much pushing of technology and optimism forward. How do we also make sure that society benefits holistically in that? And one thing that you talked about um, recently that I thought was really interesting and inspiring was Invest America, um, which I think is a is, is an exciting program in that direction. Can yeah. you talk a little bit? Totally. that? I, just, I think it kind of ties into some of these things here.
1: Yeah. You know, I think sometimes. You know, first, we're all super privileged, right? We're in this room and we get to play this sport in one of those most magical times and magical places in the history of the world, not just the history of capitalism, like the history of the world. You know, picture this we have an hourglass, each grain of sand represents 10 million people. The bottom of the hourglass is nearly full 110 billion people have lived on this planet, and are now in the bottom of the hourglass. And for all of them, or for 99.8% of them, they never saw a single invention during their their entire life. Their life cycle was shorter than the invention cycle. And now we have a few grains of sand going through the hourglass every year, and we have only a few in the top, just seven billion, right, in the top. And we get to live at that moment in time where we're inundated daily with new innovations. And if you look at almost all the advancements of humans, literacy, longevity, quality of life, right? Average GDP on the entire planet. Like this is the best time in the history of the world to occupy the planet. And we're the ones who get to experiment, to invent the shit that moves it forward even more. And AI is you know, unlocking that accelerating rate. All that is true and makes me a huge optimist. And that's why I'm passionate about what we do. I think what we all do matters. But I'm also eyes wide open to the fact that what we do does not impact everybody equally, right? In fact, some of the things we do adversely affects certain people. Human progress, right, by definition. So work with me on this, right? The industrial revolution. If you were in the business of making horse-drawn carriages, or you were a blacksmith repairing the horseshoes for horses, right? You were out of business. Now scale that by a million times. Think about the people who are going to be displaced by AI, right? Like what, what the industrial revolution did to craftspeople, right? We're going to do to white collar employment with AI. Call center, engineers getting 30 to 50% more productive. That's going to change the rate at which, you know what? there will be other new and great jobs. I'm with, I'm with Andreessen and I think, you know, I'm in the optimist camp on this, but those dislocations happen fast and then society rebuilds and backfills. So part of my thing, particularly for this country, because we're in the privileged position to do this, I think that everybody should share in the upside of this grand bargain that we're all working on together. And so it's a very simple idea. We have 3.7 million children born in this country every year. The federal government should set up a seed investment account for every one of those children. Okay? Seed it with $1,000 in the S&P 500. Because today, 70% of families and kids will never benefit from savings or investment. Right? And Warren Buffett calls compounding the eighth wonder of the world. You want to know why wealth gaps exist? Because the fact of the matter is, if you're a winner today, Mark Zuckerberg, he sells to three billion people. Rockefeller, the prior age of robber barons, had 20 million customers, at most. So just think about the scale at which we're now operating. Think about the people who work in call centers or work in places that are going to be displaced by AI. So we bring everybody under the tent, right? I think this is gonna be a golden age for this country, a golden age for our markets, it is a t- this is less than one one hundred of one percent of our national budget to give everybody skin in the game in which we're all playing, and if we can afford to spend six another sixty billion on Ukraine or three billion for twenty countries around the world every year in foreign aid, think about this: the sixty billion going to Ukraine, and we can that's a totally separate debate whether you think that's worthy, but that would pay for fifty million children. Right in this country, almost every child for the next fi- or every child for the next 15 years to have a starting account, a seed capital account, right? And if you grow that and compound that over time, if you start with a thousand and you add $750 every year, so I've talked to Dara Kashrashai at Uber. He's like, well, we'd probably match that for all the kids of our employees, right? I was talking with Michael Dell. Yeah, like that's an interesting thing. We would consider that. So now we have a match, and parents can start saving you know, for their kids, then by the by, the time you're 10 years old, you have $15,000 in that account. But by the time you're 30 years old, you have 150,000 in that account. By the time you're 50, you have a million dollars in that account. We have a crisis in this country that less than half of people under the age of 40 believe in capitalism, okay? Pew and Gallup are showing polls that say just in the last three three years, 10% more people lost their, you know, lost their confidence in capitalism. We have to solve that crisis. Ray Dalio talks about the rise and fall of nations in this moment, but it's not static. Like, There's a dynamic system that we can actually do something about. And so we have a broad coalition coming together, a bipartisan coalition coming together to support the legislation. We've got the funding. Um, Follow us. I brought a little uh, a, a little take home I'll leave you with, but follow it at investamerica24 on Twitter and look for the ads that will start hitting in this political season legislation to get to introduce next year. And, you know, yes, I think, you know, to answer your question, we are privileged to do what we do. We have voice, we have reach. I think we need to be part of these solutions, whether it's AI regulation, uh, whether it's issues of, of, of national security, um, whether it's issues of you know we look at the bank, uh, you know the regional banking crisis that we had earlier in this year, I think we we do and we should have voice and we should we we should use that to bring everybody along for the benefits that we're seeing.
0: That's great. That's a I think a very inspirational place to stop. So thanks so much for joining today.
1: Thank because you. Happy are, to yeah. do some Q and A. Thank you. All. Yeah, Appreciate yeah. it. Thank you. Hey, I don't know what your schedule is, but sure if you enough, want to do have a little questions. Little Q and I'm happy to do it. I'm curious, i so many questions that was amazing thank you uh, I, I guess it's one to sort of where you ended with america's place in the world i think it sort of has the potential to be a really special period for capitalism um but we also have the this problem you mentioned about people not having faith in capitalism and people not having faith in, the, in america and we have this kind of ballooning debt problem two wars on two fronts happening yeah you, know, you can see how these things might Overstretch America economically, and, and most importantly, the faith in the U.S. And so how do you think that plays out? Where do you think AI plays into it? You know, in theory, winning the AI inflection
0: makes America re-sort re of gain its place in the world.
1: Yeah, I just would love to hear your thoughts on that. I, I would say first, and you probably heard us debate this a little bit on the all-in pod where, you know, I'm affectionately the fifth bestie, which means I'm not good enough to be in the top four. But if somebody goes down, they pull me off the bench. Um, but... You know, and and there. um, What I would say is this, I think it's having traveled the world and look at entrepreneurial ecosystems in China, in the Middle East, in Europe, et cetera. I think one of the things that's deeply underappreciated about this country is the genetic imprint. This country was founded by entrepreneurs. It was founded by risk takers. The move west was risk takers every step along the way was basically an entrepreneurial journey. We set up our entire system. Even if you think about the system of bankruptcy, right? The system of bankruptcy is an incentive system to be an entrepreneur, right? That even if you try and fail, we value you so much that you don't have to ruin the rest of your life. Thomas Jefferson declared bankruptcy four or five times, right, like that was a deal we made in this economic system. So first, I think that exists. I think the pulse is as strong as ever. With that said, I don't think there's a natural entitlement forever. I think you need to recognize this specialness and you need to protect it. I look at it and I say, you know, you probably heard us talk on the pod, that when you think about the dollar's reserve currency, when you think about interest rates, these are all relative questions. Relative to who else? The Yuan, right? I was just with, in the the Gulf countries. Right, where they're pegged since the early 80s to the U.S. dollar. And I asked the heads of the Fed in Bahrain and Saudi, you know, are you guys, you know, I hear a lot about the yuan. Would you consider re-pegging? They're like, are you kidding us? Right? Like the yuan is manipulated. Like the U.S. has got the most diversified, strong economy in the world. The future of technology is happening in the United States. That at the end of the day, like why do you invest in a company? Because you're like fundamentally, they have the best developers. They're building the best products. They may have a bad quarter but it's an engine of innovation that will continue to grow. And I think that is the perception I have of this country. And again, um, there are things we need to do better. We can't afford $2 trillion annual deficits. We have a $34 trillion national debt, right? Like we need to be serious about addressing these things, but we can, we will, and we should. Um, You know, when I think about things like Invest America, you also can't be against everything. We do spend a lot of money. But we have a choice. Do we need to spend $5 billion on the next weapon system? Or how about seeding every child in America, you know, to bring them into this system of capitalism? And so, like, I think we, we need a fresh look, right, top to bottom at where our spending is. Um, and it's going to mean, listen, prior generations borrowed from you guys and borrowed from your kids. That, that debt's going to have to be paid. Right, and so like it, 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 the good news is we are among the few countries on the planet that have a free cash flow coming out of this innovation super cycle. We're the largest producer. We're not a net exporter of oil. Like like we have a lot of natural gifts, right? And the intellectual and and, and and ingenuity is the greatest one. So I'm optimistic about that, but we can't turn a blind eye. We can't take it for granted. Um, I think the state of California has done too much about that. They need to get it back on the right track. Um, and I think that, you know, listen, the last 10 years, I said, time to get fit to Mark Zuckerberg. I said it to everybody in Silicon Valley. I can write the exact same letter to the United States federal government. It's time to get fit. Reign in the excess of the free money period, right? And this is just basic math, right? We can do this.
0: I think if you look at our role in data, too, there's two things that stand out. <clears throat> One is what Brad said earlier, where if you look at almost every aspect of humanity, in terms of global poverty, child education, education of girls, um, death by disease, famine, etc., we're, we're we're basically living through the best period of time that humanity's ever seen. And then, if you ask people in different countries how optimistic they are about the future, the poorer and worse off the country is, the more optimistic the people are. Mm. And when you get to the West, Western Europe, Mm. the US, et cetera, they're the most pessimistic about the future. And you could argue that there's two reasons for that. One is viewpoints around participation and capitalism or other things. But I think a more important one is really good times tend to distract people from what really matters and things get too easy. And you take your hands off the steering wheel. And I would argue the last decade, we took our hands off the steering wheel in all sorts of ways, the fiscal responsibility side, but also how we think about. Uh, the roles of universities, how we think about the world philosophically, and so I, I think there's going to potentially be a hard reset because you start squandering all the positives over time. So. I mean, I,
1: I, you know, again, I, you can have hard resets or, or you can grow into it, and I think if we do this responsibly. You know, we we can grow into. it. Remind you, it was only 1999 that we had a surplus in this country, right? And I was with Bill Clinton this summer, and I said, you know, how 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 were you able to govern? In those moments, and he's like, because I was the governor, um, you know, in the state of Arkansas, and we had people who lived up in the Adirondacks, like, or uh, the the mountains, not the Adirondacks; those are further north. Think of it in a second. But you know, he, he's like, I had to go into rural places and talk to people who had guns on the counter, right? And I couldn't ignore those people. I couldn't be an elitist. Like I had to bring everybody together. And right, what this country needs, it's so evenly divided. We need people who can bring people together around pragmatic solutions. Invest America, I've started now four companies, I've been in politics for a long time, It has one of the highest product market fits I've ever found. Whether Republicans and Democrats are all, they, they listen for a minute and they're like, why has this not happened? People on the hill, why has this not happened? Let's do this, right? And so that's just a pragmatic solution. I went there with my son this summer, my son Lincoln, and we met with Speaker McCarthy. And as we walked out of an hour meeting, talking about how to make this happen, I turned to him, he's 15 years old, and I said, every single thing that's ever happened in this country started with a conversation like that. A concerned citizen, a concerned community member, they started the conversation, just like every company in Silicon Valley, started with one person pulling out a napkin, Lots of people may have had the idea, but one person started, right? And you know, those are how movements are started. That's why I think it's so important that we not only build these, you know, the engines that drive the country for, forward, but we bring that same passion and intellect to, you know, the much bigger issues, right? That the country faces.
0: I think I just got convinced to run Brad for governor. <coughs> do
1: so, it, yeah. do <laughs> it! No, I'm not doing that. <laughs> uh, the Of, uh, you and Altimeter, I have eight questions that I'm going to <laughs> one from. Um, and I'll preview the second. The second was takes on OpenAI, yeah. $30 billion and $90 billion. Yeah. Well, What I'm actually asking you um, is your latest 2023 framework for dealing with uncertainty. Uh, you've said if it's not a fast yes, it's a quick no. And then you've also, i read Essentials twice on your recommendations. Mm-hmm. So thank you. Just curious what your 2023 framework for uncertainty is given you know you're investing in AI where there is literal funding risk to can we get to GPT five like the Hoppenheimer sure. situation. And you also invested in you took you took grab public, yeah, and twenty-five percent of their GMV was in I think was in Indonesia. Yeah. Um, so I'd love to hear your you know, twenty twenty three now or a year to two in AI. What's your latest framework for uncertainty as a top yeah. investor? Well, I I I think that um it's a rare breed that can be both a venture capitalist and a public market investor. Right? When you think about venture capital, in many ways it's the art of the possible. And when you think about the public markets, it's the art of the probable. Right? But we often just look through the lens why why does why the all in pod grow out of poker and why am I heading there tonight and do I look forward so much to our Thursday night poker games. I mean it's a, everything in life is a distribution of future unknown probabilities. And that's fun. Right? And the same the same framework applies in venture that applies in public markets that applies in poker, right? And so, you know, and we're continuous learners, right? And like how can I as an analyst gather more and more imp- how can I make this single processor have more data run faster? you know, uh, cycle times to make better decisions. As I sit here at the end of 23, I'm just sobered and reminded that ultimately all valuation frameworks end up in the exact same place. It's a reasonable reasonable multiple relative to the risk-free rate of return of future expected cash flows. That's it. Revenue multiples are total bullshit unless they result in future free cash flow that you're applying a multiple to that compared to the risk-free rate of return provides you compensation for the equity risk that you're taking, right? And so I would say, I know people who after moments of great distress get paralyzed by fear, okay? So it really helps to be an optimist. You know, Buffett's like, I've been an optimist for 50 years and it's served me well. I agree it's really important. If you're, if you're just, if you get up every morning pissed off about the world and think that tomorrow's going to be a worse place, you're going to be a terrible venture capitalist and you're not going to be a very good public market investor, but I will hire you to be on my short team to look at, you know, uh, good short ideas because like that is just constitutionally something that, you know, that is different. But at the end of the day, you know, um, I have this you know, Warren Buffett's one of my heroes, guys like Paul Reeder, value investors, guys like Seth Klarman. I'm an optimist, but I'm also kind of a value investor. Like I need to understand why the distribution of probabilities is fair. So in the public markets, you know, last year you could have bought Facebook, which is one of the greatest businesses in the history of the world, trading at six times EBITDA, right, at nine times fully taxed earnings. You know, uh, Mark gave you the blueprint in December of 22. He said, we're gonna get fit. You knew how much they could save. You knew how much margins could expand. You knew how much he was spending in the metaverse. So like, like that is a puzzle I love putting together. And I love the conversations I get to have with some of these incredible founders who are still running, you know, some of the big, biggest businesses on the planet. But we've actually, relative to our peers, we've done very little in, in AI. Uh, so far this year, and I have to tell you, it's very hard, because I'm as enthusiastic about all these companies and founders in this moment in time as anybody. Um, but at the same time, you know, when I look at you know some of these opportunities, you know, let's just take OpenAI because I, I I I think it has the best team, you know, in the business. ChatGPT four is, is is clearly the best, if not you know, one of two of the best models, you know, that exists out there today. But if you're asking me to invest at $85 billion to buy common stock that's capped on the upside, right, now we have a deal. It's like a poker hand. And I can say, okay, I know what my upside max potential is, right? I can then plot a distribution of likely outcomes, How many companies have ever in the history of Silicon Valley been worth durably more than $100 billion? What do I have to believe to be true? Okay, so they have two businesses, an enterprise business and a consumer business. Well, in the enterprise business, they have to go head-to-head with Microsoft, right? They have to go head-to-head with Google, head-to-head with AWS. So we went out and we talked to 200 customers. And just like, what are the customers telling us, right? And the customers are telling us, we can't send our data to OpenAI. Right? Like a public company can't do that. So we're gonna work with, you know, Azure Open AI a- a- AI, which by our accounts benefits Microsoft doesn't benefit open AI. Right? Or we're gonna stay at Amazon, or we're gonna work with Snowflake, or we're gonna, you know, so so we we have to apply some discount rate to our model about how big are they likely to be an enterprise, how hard is it to challenge the biggest incumbents, you gotta go build a sales force, like who's building it, all of those things. On the consumer side, which is where I get a lot more excited about OpenAI, is I say, you are the verb. I would rename the company ChatGPT. I would say, we're not going to spend a minute thinking about enterprise. We're going to recut our deal with Microsoft and just get some of the goodies that that come out of enterprise. And I would go all in on building the world's best fiduciary agent to serve all of us in a way better than 10 blue links, right? Because there's a trillion dollar prize if you can displace Google at the top of the funnel, but it is going to be a heroic battle. And, you know, and Google's not asleep at the switch and Meta's not asleep at the switch. And you got new incumbents like inflection. You got folks like ByteDance, TikTok, you know, Yaming is building a really good agent. So there are going to be a lot of people in this game right and if you want to win that game which is the biggest prize in all of technology you better be singularly focused with the best team in the world and building the you know the best model so again at that i like all these guys they're 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 friends i have deep respect and it's really hard to say no but at the end of the day i'm building a portfolio to manage to investment returns right and we compounded at some of the highest rates, I think, on the public markets and in the venture markets now for 15 years. And I didn't get there by just investing in things that I thought would be sexy to have in my portfolio or logos that I wanted to collect. I have to see like math that you know, ultimately works. And I re- reserve the right to change my mind on open AI if we learn additional facts, right? Or if the price was less, if the conversation today was 10 billion, Right or twenty billion. If I didn't have uncapped up or I didn't have a capped upside, if I wasn't buying a common security, I mean there are a lot of things that you could change about that equation that would absolutely send me running in the direction of wanting to invest in them. And so you can go through everything, right, in the AI stack. And I would say I wish we have put we we had put more money into the ground. It's been difficult to find things that I thought had an equitable distribution of risk and reward in AI. But I do think coming out of the summer, we're starting to see a bit of a reset in AI. Um, Because ultimately these things have, like if you're a software oriented company in AI, you ultimately are a software company with software like economics that has to sell into the public markets. And we know what those multiples are. If you're a consumer facing company, then like we've invested in lots of consumer companies over the years from Google to Booking to Zillow to, you know, Byte dance TikTok to Facebook, like we know the way that works. So, you know, we can just pencil it out. Um, <clears throat> and so my, my suspicion is that some of the lather, you know, will will go away over the course of the next year or two. But th- this is, you know, in the short run, we're probably overestimating it. We're in a bit of a, a little bit of hypishness around prices. But over the medium to long term, we're probably underestimating it. The winners, trust me, the winners of this will generate a lot more than hundred billion dollars of enterprise value from the prize that they're going to win. There are trillion dollars in prizes to be won by the winners in this. Um, and so, you know, earlier stage, if you're investing like this guy's lucky enough to, in the in, in the earliest stage, um, you know, those are those are a different type of bet, different size checks. But as you scale up and the price scales up you have to think of, you know, you have to reorient. So an angel check where I'm writing 50 or $500,000 into a company, uh, you know, the only thing I'm underwriting there are these killers. And it's a generally good idea. And so you can place a bunch of those vets on the board, but if you're writing a hundred million or a $300 million check into a company, then you have to know that there's, you know, I I don't even call them venture companies anymore. At that point, I call them quasi-public because they get shopped around to a bunch of people right we all have big big stacks we can all write the checks and so at that point in time there's much less arbitrage in the market right the market becomes way more efficient and now i have to compete just like in the public market right it only takes one person to price that last security and so like i i, I don't know who that person is i i have to price it myself and say are we you know are we set up asymmetrically uh to win and so hold these two truths that are intention, just like they were in 98, 99. This will be bigger. It will have more impact on humanity than probably everything that came before. But it doesn't mean you have to own it all now. This will play out over decades, not days. Um, And so that's the way we're thinking about it. It's been a lot of fun. Um, And uh, I envy the stage at which you guys all are. I'd, I'd, I'd pay a lot of money to go back and play those 20 years over again. Um, but um, follow, up, follow the Invest America thing. Get in, let your voice be heard. Um, and uh, thanks for having me. Thanks so much.